Chapter Thirteen, Part One of Laddie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Laddie by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter Thirteen, Part One, The Garden of the Lord. With what contentment and merriment their days are spent, whose minds are bent to follow the useful plough. That spring, I decided if school didn't stop pretty soon, I'd run away again, and I didn't in the least care what they did to me. A country road was all right, and it was good enough, if it had been heaped up, leveled, and plenty of gravel put on. And of course our road would be fine, because father was one of the commissioners, and as long as he filled that office, every road in the county would be just as fine as the law would allow him to make it. I have even heard him tell mother that he stretched it a little mite, when he was forced to by people who couldn't seem to be made to understand what was required to upbuild a nation. He said our language was founded on the alphabet, and to master it you had to begin with A. And he said the nation was like that. It was based on townships, and when a township was clean, had good roads, bridges, schoolhouses, and churches, a county was in fine shape. And when each county was in order, the state was right. And when the state was prosperous, the nation could rejoice in its strength. He said Atlas in the geography book, carrying the world on his back. Was only a symbol, but it was a good one. He said when the county elected him to fill an important office, it used his shoulder as a prop for the nation. So it became his business to stand firmly, and use every ounce of strength and brains he had, first of all to make his own possessions a model, then his township, his county, and his state. And if every one worked together doing that, no nation on earth had our amount of territory and such fine weather. So none of them could beat us. Our road was like the barn floor where you drove. On each side was a wide grassy strip, and not a weed the length of our land. All the rails and the fences were laid straight. The gates were solid, sound, and swung firmly on their beams. Our fence corners were full of alders, wild roses, sumac, blackberry vines, masses of wild flowers beneath them, and a bird for every bush. Some of the neighbors thought that to drive two rails every so often, lay up the fences straight, and grub out the shrubs was the way, but father said they were vastly mistaken. He said that was such a short-sighted proceeding; he would be ashamed to indulge in it. You did get more land, but if you left no place for the birds, the worms and insects devoured your crops, and you didn't raise half so much as if you furnished the birds shelter and food. So he left mulberries in the fields and fence corners. And wild cherries, raspberries, grapes, and every little scrub apple tree from seeds sown by Johnny Appleseed when he crossed our land. Mother said those apples were so hard a crane couldn't dent them, but she never watched the birds in winter when the snow was beginning to come and other things were covered up. They swarmed over those trees until spring, for the tiny sour apples stuck just like oak leaves waiting for next year's crop to push them off. She never noticed us either. After a few frosts, we could almost get tipsy on those apples. There was not a tree in our orchard that had the spicy, teasing tang of Johnny Appleseed's apples. Then too, the limbs could be sawed off, and Rambo and Maiden's Blush grafted on if you wanted to. Father did on some of them, so there would be good apples lying beside the road for passers-by, and they needn't steal to get them. You could graft red haws on them too, and grow great big little haw apples. That were the prettiest things you ever saw, and the best to eat. 
Father said if it didn't spoil the looks of the road, he wouldn't care how many of his neighbors straighten their fences. If they did, the birds would come to him, and the more he had, the fewer bugs and worms he would be troubled with. So he would be sure of big crops and sound fruit. He said he would much rather have a few good apples picked by robins or jays than untouched trees, loaded with wormy falling ones he could neither use nor sell. He always patted my head and liked every line of it when I recited, sort of tearful like and pathetic. Don't kill the birds, the happy birds, that bless the field and grove, so innocent to look upon, they claim our warmest love. The roads crossing our land were all right, and most of the others near us. And a road is wonderful if it is taking you to the woods or a creek or meadow. But when it is walking you straight to a stuffy little schoolhouse, where you must stand up to see from a window, where a teacher is cross as fire, like Miss Amelia, and where you eternally hear things you can't see, there comes a time about the middle of April when you had quite as soon die as to go to school any longer. And what you learn there doesn't amount to a hill of beans compared with what you can find out for yourselves outdoors. Schoolhouses are made wrong. If they must be, they should be built in a woods pasture beside a stream, where you could wade, swim, and be comfortable in summer, and slide and skate in winter. The windows should be cut to the floor, and stand wide open so the birds and butterflies could pass through. You ought to learn your geography by climbing a hill. Walking through a valley, wading creeks, making islands in them, and promontories, capes, and peninsulas along the bank. You should do your arithmetic sitting under trees, adding hickory nuts, subtracting walnuts, multiplying butternuts, and dividing hazelnuts. You could use apples for fractions, and tin cups for liquid measure. You could spell everything in sight, and this would teach you the words that are really used in the world. Every single one of us could spell incompatibility, but I never heard father, or the judge, or even the bishop put it in a speech. If you simply can't have school that way, then you should be shut in black cells, deep under the ground, where you couldn't see or hear a sound. And then, if they'd give you a book and candle, and Miss Amelia, and her right hand man, Mr. Ruler, why, you might learn something. This way, if you sat and watched the windows, you could see a bird cross our woods pasture to the redbird swamp every few minutes. Once in a while, one of my big hawks took your breath as he swept, soared, sailed, and circled, watching the ground below for rabbits, snakes, or chickens. The skinny old blue herons, crossing from the wabash to hunt frogs in the cowslip swale in our meadow, sailed so slow and so low that you could see their sharp bills stuck out in front. Their uneven, ragged looking feathers, and their long legs trailing out behind. I bet if Polly Martin wore a blue calico dress so short her spindle shank showed, and flew across our farm, you couldn't tell her from a heron. There were so many songs you couldn't decide which was which to save you. It was just a pouring jumble of robins, larks, doves, blackbirds, sparrows, everything that came early. The red and the yellow birds had not come yet. Or the catbirds or thrushes. You could hear the thumping wings of the roosters in Sill's barnyard nearest the schoolhouse, and couldn't tell which was whipping, so you had to sit there and wonder. And worst of all, you must stand Miss Amelia calmly telling you to pay attention to your books, or you would be kept in. And all the time you were forced to bear torments, while you watched her walk from window to window to see every speck of the fight. 
One day they had thumped and fought for half an hour. She had looked from every window in the room, and at last there was an awful whacking, and then silence. It grew so exciting I raised my hand, and almost before she nodded permission, which whipped? I asked. Miss Amelia turned red as a beet. Gee, but she was mad. I did, she said, or at least I will. You may remain for it after school is dismissed. Now, if you are going to be switched, they never do it until they are just so angry anyway, and then they always make it as hard as they dare not to stripe you. So it isn't much difference how provoked they are. It will be the same old thrashing, and it's sure to sting for an hour at least. So you might as well be beaten for a little more as hardly anything at all. At that instant, from the fence not far from my window, came a triumphant crow that fairly ripped across the room. Oh, it was the Dorking! I said. No wonder you followed clear around the room to see him thrash a Shanghai three times his size. I bet a dollar it was great. Usually I wouldn't have put up more than five cents, but at that time I had over six dollars from my Easter eggs, and no girl of my age at our school ever had half that much. Miss Amelia started toward me, and I braced my feet so she'd get a good jolt herself when she went to shake me. She never struck us over the head since Laddie talked to her that first day, but John Hood's foot was in the aisle. I thought maybe I'd have him for my bow when we grew up, because I bet he knew she was coming and stuck out his foot on purpose. Anyway, she pitched and had to catch a desk to keep off the floor, and that made her so mad at him that she forgot me, while he got his scolding. So when my turn came at last, she had cooled down enough that she only marched past to her desk. Saying I was to remain after school. I had to be careful after that to be mighty good to May and Leon. When school was out, they sat on the steps before the door and waited. Miss Amelia fussed around, and there they sat. Then her face grew more gobblerish than usual, and she went out and told them to go home. Plain as anything, I heard May say it. She's been awful sick, you know, and mother wouldn't allow it. And then Leon piped up. You did watch the roosters all the time they fought, and of course all of us wanted to see just as badly as you did. She told them if they didn't go right home, she'd bring them back and whip them too, so they had to start and leave me to my sad fate. I was afraid they had made it sadder instead of helping me. She was so provoked when she came in, she was crying, and over nothing but the plain truth too. If we had storied on her, she'd have had some cause to bell her. She arranged her table, cleaned the board, emptied the water bucket, and closed the windows. Then she told me I was a rude, untrained child. I was rude, I suppose, but goodness knows I wasn't untrained. That was hard on father and mother. I had a big notion to tell them, and then she never whipped me at all. She said if I wanted her to love me, I mustn't be a saucy, impudent girl, and I should go straight home and think it over. I went, but I was so dazed at her thinking I wanted her to love me that I hardly heard May and Leon calling. When I did, I went to the cemetery fence, and there they lay in the long grass waiting. If you cried, we were coming back and pitch into her," said Leon. There was a pointer. Next time, first cut she gave me, I decided to scream bloody murder. But that would be no crusader way. There was one thing though. No crusader ever sat and heard a perfectly lovely fight going on, and never even wondered which whipped. 
May and Leon stepped one on each side, took a hand, and we ran like Indians, and slid down the hill between the bushes, climbed the fence, crossed the pasture back of the church, and went to the creek. There we sat on a log. I told them, and we just laughed. I didn't know what I could do to pay them, for they saved me sure as fate that time. I wished we lived in the woods the way it was when father and mother were married and moved to Ohio. The nearest neighbors were nine miles, and there wasn't a dollar for school funds, so of course the children didn't have to go. And what their fathers and mothers taught them was all they knew. That would not have helped me much, though, for we never had one single teacher who knew anything to compare with what father and mother did. And we never had one who was forever reading books, papers, and learning more things that help to teach other people. I wished father had time to take our school. It would have been some fun to go to him, because I just knew he would use our woods for the room, and teach us things it would do some good to know about. I began debating whether it was a big enough thing to bother the Lord with, this being penned up in the schoolhouse, droning over spelling and numbers, when you could smell tree bloom, flower bloom, dozens of birds were nesting, and everything was beginning to hum with life. I couldn't think for that piece about spring going over in my head. I am coming, I am coming. Hark, the little bee is humming. See, the lark is soaring high in the bright and sunny sky. All the birds are on the wing. Little maiden, now is spring. I made up my mind that it was of enough importance to call for the biggest prayer I could think of, and that I would go up in the barn to the top window, stand on a beam, and turn my face to the east, where Jesus used to be, and I'd wrestle with the Lord for freedom, as Jacob wrestled with the angel on the banks of the Jabbok in the land of Ammon. I was just getting up steam to pray as hard as ever I could. For days I'd been thinking of it, and I was nearly to the point where one more killdeer crying across the sky would have sent me headlong from the schoolhouse, anywhere that my feet were on earth, and the air didn't smell of fried potatoes, kraut, sweat, and dogs, like it did whenever you sat beside Clarissa Polk. When I went to supper one night, father had been to Groveville, and he was busy over his papers. After he finished the blessing, he seemed worried. At last he said the funds were all out, and the county would make no appropriation, so school would have to close next week. Well, that beats me. I had faith in that prayer I was going to make, and here the very thing I intended to ask for happened before I prayed. I decided I would save the prayer until the next time I couldn't stand anything another minute, and then I would try it with all my might, and see if it really did any good. After supper I went out the back door, spread my arms wide, and ran down the orchard to the fence in great bounds, the fastest I ever went in my life. I climbed my pulpit in the corner, and tried to see how much air my lungs would hold without bursting, while I waved my arms and shouted at the top of my voice, Praise ye the Lord! Praised be his holy name! Crock! cried an old blue heron among the cowslips below me. I had almost scared it to death and it arose on flapping wings, and paid me back, by frightening me so, I screamed as I dodged its shadow. "'What is all this?' asked father behind me. "'Come up and take a seat, and I'll try to tell you,' I said. So he stepped on my pulpit, and sat on the top rail, while I stood between his knees, put my arms around his neck, took off his hat, and loosened his hair so the wind could wave it, and make his head feel cool and good. 
His hair curled a little, and it was black and fine. His cheeks were pink, and his eyes the brightest blue, with long lashes and heavier brows than any man I ever have seen. He was the best looking, always so clean and fresh, and you never had to be afraid of him, unless you had been a bad, sinful child. If you were all right, you would walk into his arms, play with his hair, kiss him all you pleased, and there wasn't a thing on earth you couldn't tell him, excepting a secret you had promised to keep. So I explained all this, and more too, about how I wanted to hunt for the flowers, to see which bloomed first, and watch in what order the birds came. And now it was a splendid time to locate nests, because there were no leaves, so I could see easily. And how glad mother would be to know where the blue goose nested, and her white turkey hen, because she wanted her geese all blue, and the turkeys all white, as fast as she could manage. Every little thing that troubled me, or that I wanted, I told him. He sat there, and he couldn't have listened with more interest, or been quieter if I had been a bishop. Which is the biggest thing that ever happened at our house. His name was Nind, and he came from Chicago to dedicate our church when it was new. So father listened, and thought, and held his arms around me, and. And you think the Lord was at the bottom of the thing that makes you happy? Well, you always go to him about what concerns you, and you say, Praise the Lord, when things go to please you. I do indeed, said father. But I had thought of this running short of school funds as a calamity. If I had been praying about it, I would have asked him to show me a way to raise money to continue until middle May at least. Oh, father! I just crumpled up in his arms and began to cry. To save me, I couldn't help it. He held me tight. At last he said, I think you are a little overstrained this spring. Maybe you are sicker than we knew, or are growing too fast. Don't worry any more about school. Possibly father can fix it. Next morning, when I wakened, my everyday clothes lay across the foot of the bed. So I called mother and asked if I should put them on. She took me in her arms and said father thought I had better be in the open and I needn't go to school any more that spring. I told her I thought I could bear it a few more days, now it was going to be over so soon. But she said I might stay at home. Father and Laddie would hear me at night. And I could take my books anywhere I pleased and study when I chose, if I had my spelling and reading learned at evening. Now, say the Lord, doesn't help those who call on Him in faith believing. Think of being allowed to learn your lessons on the top of the granary, where you could look out of a window above the treetops, lie in the cool wind, and watch swallows and martins. Think of studying in the pulpit when the creek ran high and the wild birds sang so sweetly you seemed to hear them for the first time in all your life, and hens, guineas, and turkeys made prime music in the orchard. You could see the buds swell and the little blue flags push through the grass where Mrs. Mayer had her flower bed, and the cowslips greening under the water of the swale at the foot of the hill, while there might be a fairy under any leaf. I was so full, so swelled up and excited, that when I got ready to pick up a book, I could learn a lesson in a few minutes, tell all about it, spell every word, and read it back, front and sideways. I never learned lessons so quick and so easy in all my life. Father, Laddie, and every one of them had to say so. One night, Father said to Laddie, This child is furnishing evidence that our school system is wrong, and our methods of teaching far from right. 
"'Or is it merely proof that she is different?' said Laddie. "'And you can't run her through the same groove that you could the rest of us.' "'A little of both,' said Father. "'But most that the system is wrong. "'We are not going at children in a way to gain and hold their interest, "'and make them love their work. "'There must be a better way of teaching, "'and we should find different teachers. "'You'll have to try the school next year yourself, Laddie.' "'I have a little plan about a piece of land I'm hoping to take before then,' answered Laddie. "'It's time for me to try my wings at making a living, and land is my choice. "'I have fully decided. I stick to the soil.' "'Amen!' cried Father. "'You please me mightily. "'I hate to see sons of mine thriving on law, "'literally making their living out of the fruit of other men's discord. "'I dislike seeing them sharpen their wits in trade.' buying at the lowest limit, extorting the highest. I don't want their horizons limited by city blocks, their feet on pavements, everything under the sun in their heads that concerns a scheme to make money, not room for an hour's thought or study in a whole day about the really vital things of life. After all, land and its products are the basis of everything. The city couldn't exist a day unless we feed and clothe it. In the things that I consider important, you are a king among men, with your feet on soil you own. So I figure it, said Laddie. And you are the best educated man I have reared, said Father. Take this other thought with you. On land, the failure of the bank does not break you. The fire another man's carelessness starts does not wipe out your business or home. You are not in easy reach of contagion. Any time you want to branch out, your mother and I will stand back of you. "'Thank you,' said Laddie. "'You backed none of the others. "'They would resent it. "'I'll make the best start I can myself, "'and as they did, stand alone.' "'Father looked at him and smiled slowly. "'You are right, as always,' he said. "'I hadn't thought so far. "'It would make trouble. "'At any rate, let me inspect and help you select your land.' "'That, of course,' said Laddie. "'I suspect it's not a very nice thing for me to tell.' But all of us were tickled silly the day Miss Amelia packed her trunk and left for sure. Mother said she never tried harder in all her days, but Miss Amelia was the most distinctly unlovable person she ever had met. She sympathized with us so, she never said a word when Leon sang. Believe me, if all those enduring young charms, which I gazed on so fondly today, were to change by tomorrow and fleet in my arms, like fairy gifts fading away, Thou wouldst still be adored, as this moment thou art. Let thy loveliness fade as it will. And around the dear rune, each wish of my heart, Would entwine itself verdantly still. While Miss Amelia drove from sight up the Groveville Road. As he sang, Leon stretched out his arms after her vanishing form. I hope, he said, that you caught that touching reference to the dear rune. And could anything be expressed more beautifully and poetically than that verdantly still? I feel sorry for a snake. I like hop-toads, owls, and shite-pokes. I envy a buzzard the way it can fly, and polecats are beautiful. But I never could get up any sort of feeling at all for Miss Amelia, whether she was bird-like or her true self. So no one was any gladder than I when she was gone. After that, spring came pushing until you felt shoved. Our family needed me then. If they never had known it before, they found out there was none too many of us. 
Every day I had to watch the blue goose, and bring in her egg before it was chilled, carrying it carefully so it would not be jarred. I had to hunt the turkey nests, and gather their eggs so they would be right for setting. There had to be straw carried from the stack for new nests, eggs marked, and hens set by the dozen. Garden time came, so leaves had to be raked from the beds and from the dooryard. No one was busier than I. But every little while I ran away and spent some time all by myself in the pulpit, under the hawk oak, or on the roof. Coming from church that Sunday, when we reached the top of the big hill, mother touched father's arm. Stop a minute, she said, and he checked the horses, while we sat there and wondered why, as she looked and looked all over the farm. Then, now drive to the top of the little hill and turn, and stop exactly on the place from which we first viewed this land together, she said. You know the spot, don't you? You may well believe I know it, said father. I can hit it to the inch. You see, children, he went on, your mother and I arranged before the words were said over us. He always put it that way. I never in my life heard him say, when we were married. He read so many books, he talked exactly like a book. That we would be partners in everything, as long as we lived. When we decided the Ohio land was not quite what we wanted, she sent me farther west to prospect, while she stayed at home and kept the baby. When I reached this land, found it for sale, and within my means, I bought it, and started home happy. Before I'd gone a mile, I turned to look back, and saw that it was hilly, mostly woods, and there was no computing the amount of work it would require to make it what I could see in it. So I began to think maybe she wouldn't like it, and to wish I had brought her before I closed the deal. By the time I returned home, packed up, and traveled this far on the way back with her, there was considerable tension in my feelings. Considerable tension, repeated father, as he turned the horses and began driving carefully, measuring the distance from Hood's and the bridge. At last he stopped, backed up a step, and said, There, Mommy, did I hit the spot? You did, said mother, stepping from the carriage and walking up beside him. She raised one hand and laid it on the lamp near him. He shifted the lines, picked up her hand, and held it tight. Mother stood there looking, just silently looking. May jabbed me in the side, leaned over, and whispered, Could we but stand where Moses stood, and view the landscape o'er? Not our little creek, nor dinner getting cold, could fright us from that shore. I couldn't help giggling, but I knew that was no proper time, so I hid my head in her lap and smothered the sound the best I could. But they were so busy soft-soldering each other, they didn't pay a bit of attention to us. It was May now. All the leaves were fresh and dustless. Everything that flowered at that time was weighted with bloom. Bees hummed past, butterflies sailed through the carriage, while birds at the tops of their voices, all of them, every kind there was, saying fit to split. Friendly, unafraid bluebirds darted around us, and talked a blue streak from every fence rider. Made you almost crazy to know what they said. The little creek floated our feet across the road, through the blue flag swamp, where the red and yellow birds lived. You could see the sun flash on the water where it emptied into the stream that crossed Deems's, and flowed through our pasture, and away beyond the big hill arose, with the new church on top, the graveyard around it the big creek flashing at its base. In the valley between lay our fields, meadows, the big red barn, the white house with the yard filled with trees and flowering shrubs.
beyond it the garden, all made up, neat and growing, and back of it the orchard in full bloom. Mother looked and looked. Suddenly she raised her face to father. Paul, she said, that first day, did you ever dream it could be made to look like this? No, said father, I never did. I saw houses, barns, and cleared fields. I hoped for comfort and prosperity. But I didn't know any place could grow to be so beautiful. And there is something about it, even on a rainy November day. There is something that catches me in the breast, on the top of either of these hills, until it almost stifles me. What is it, Ruth? The home feeling, said Mother. It is in my heart so big this morning. I am filled with worship, just filled with the spirit of worship. She was rocking on her toes, like she does when she becomes too happy at the meeting-house to be quiet any longer, and cries, Glory! right out loud. She pointed to the orchard, an immense orchard of big apple-trees in full bloom, with two rows of peach-trees around the sides. It looked like a great, soft, pinkish-white blanket, with a deep pink border, spread lightly on the green earth. We planted that way because we thought it was best. How could we know how it would look in bloom-time? It seems as if you came to these hilltops, and figured on the picture you would make before you cleared, or fenced a field. That's exactly what I did, said father. Many's the hour, all told, that I have stopped my horse on one of these hilltops, and studied how to make the place beautiful, as well as productive. That was a task you set me, my girl. You always considered beauty, as well as use, about the house and garden, and wherever you worked. I had to hold my part in line. You have made it all a garden, said mother. You have made it a garden, growing under the smile of the master. A very garden of the Lord, father. Father drew up her hand, and held it tight against his heart. Your praise is sweet, my girl, sweet, he said. I have tried, God knows I have tried, to make it first comfortable, then beautiful, for all of us. To the depths of my soul, I thank him for this hour. I am glad, oh, I am so glad you like your home, Ruth. I couldn't endure it if you complained, found fault, and wished you lived elsewhere. Why, father, said my mother, in the most surprised voice, why, father, it would kill me to leave here. This is ours. We have made it by and through the strength of the Lord and our love for each other. All my days I want to live here. And when I die, I want to lie beside my blessed babies, and you, Paul, down by the church we gave the land for, and worked so hard to build. I love it. Oh, I love it. See how clean and white the dark evergreens make the house look? See how the big chestnuts fit in and point out the yellow road? I wish we had a row the length of it. They wouldn't grow, said father. You mind the time I had finding the place those wanted to set their feet? I do indeed, said mother, drawing her hand and his with it, where she could rub her cheek against it. Now we'll go home, and have our dinner and a good rest. I'm a happy woman this day, father. A happy, happy woman. If only one thing didn't worry me. Must there always be a fly in the ointment, mother? She looked at him with a smile that was like a hug and a kiss, and she said, I have found it so, father, and I have been happy in spite of it. Where one has such wide interests, at some point there is always a pull. But in his own day, in his own way, the Lord is going to make everything right. Thy faith hath made thee whole, quoted father. Then she stepped into the carriage. 
and he waited a second, quite long enough to let her see that he was perfectly willing to sit there all day if she wanted him to. And then he slowly and carefully drove home, as he always did when she was in the carriage. Times when he had us children out alone, he went until you couldn't see the spokes in the wheels. He just loved to speed up once in a while on a piece of fine road to let us know how going fast felt. Mother sat there trembling a little, smiling, misty-eyed. I was thinking, for I knew what the fly in the ointment was. She had a letter from Shelley yesterday, and she said there wasn't a reason on earth why father or laddie should spend money to come to Chicago. She would soon be home, she was counting the hours, and she never wanted to leave again. In the start she didn't want to go at all, unless she could stay three years at the very least. Of course it was that dreadful man who had made her so beautiful and happy, and then taken away all the joy. How could a man do it? It was the hardest thing to understand. End of chapter 13, part 1